Well, guys, we did it. UFC 266 in the books. Big one, obviously, from a betting standpoint. You watch fights because you're a fight fan. You watch it for the entertainment side of things. But it's not all that entertaining when you're losing. It's even more entertaining when you're winning. It turns a bad fight into a good fight. It turns a Curtis Blades absolute slog, not very good entertaining 15 minutes, into the most entertaining 15 minutes. We gamble. We love fights. This is why we do it, the big card. So to be able to cash on a card like that, even better. Um, I'm going to jump right into things. I'm pretty banged up from last night. I ended up going to bed at like 4 or 5 in the morning. You're running high. And uh, I always say, you know, we, we do the picks. You're always trying to hit your top line. We have the most investment in our top line. We would like to hit those top two lines. We're securing profit, right? If you only hit the top line, break even at best. Hit those top two lines, secure a little bit of profit. You hit that third line, all right, all right. A three-liner, that's a good night. A four-liner, that's a really good night. We ended up hitting seven straight lines last night. So, I mean, I think we all deservedly so. I, I didn't see a whole lot of people that lost money on that card. Whether you followed me or you went with your own picks and your own gut instincts, most people, even the picks that people got wrong, like the Nick Diaz, it's like nobody was really heavy on that stuff. So we were largely on the right page and entertainment fights to boot. So let's jump into things. Jonathan Pierce versus Omar Morales. Fight number one, we got Jonathan Pierce. He actually opened as a plus 165 favorite. We had him as a plus 145 favorite, or uh, underdog, sorry, plus 165 underdog. We got him at plus 145. This is really, in my opinion, the only true underdog that we had on the card, right? So first fight of the night. What we know about Pierce, right, is you can knock him out in the first round like Joe Lozon did, and if you don't, he is just putting pressure on you nonstop. He is an absolute grinder with seemingly an endless gas tank. And whereas wrestling on paper isn't, Ah, uh, D1 All-American, super high level, great athlete. He's got this grinding style where he just keeps shooting, keeps putting pressure on you, throws strikes, sets it up, takes you back down again. That style is going to have a lot of success. And you've seen him do it to Kai Kamaka. Kai Kamaka is a flat-footed boxer, good hands, not great cardio, but a pretty cast-iron guy. He pushes pressure on him. He eventually takes him down. He eventually grinds on him, and he eventually opens up a finish. Finishing Kai Kamaka, not easy, but the pressure is what opens it up. Omar Morales, if anything, has shown a solid durability. Giga almost finished him twice, but didn't. And Giga Chikots, as we know now, is a total badass. Omar Morales had never previously been finished. He's a cast at 145. He's a big, strong guy. All four of his fights in the UFC had so far gone to decision. So for Jonathan Pierce to go out there and break this guy and, uh, and finish him inside the distance, good stuff, man. Good stuff. Great way to open the night. And again, we don't have a ton of underdogs on this card, so good that Pierce came through at least. Where does he go from here? Man, sky's the limit for him because he's still young. He's clearly getting better, and he's going to give you one of these rugged outs. Yeah, Joe Lozon caught him that one time in Boston. Well, I suppose that could happen. But outside of that, he's going to be a rough out for a lot of guys. And whereas I don't think he's top 10 certainly yet, I think he's still only 27 years old. Keeps making improvements. Going to be good. Omar Morales, meanwhile, it's not like... I don't hold anything against him from losing to Jonathan Pierce. Clearly, we like Jonathan Pierce. He's a very talented individual, and that's why we backed him. But for Omar, he's 34, right? So whereas Pierce is going to continue to make improvements and get even better and better, Omar Morales is kind of at a situation where I don't see him making a ton of improvements to his game. Now, he is a BJJ black belt, but clearly not that good, right? His takedown defense, he's a really strong guy. Takedown defense, 
not that great. Well, he's a big striker with big power. Five fights in the UFC, never knocked out a guy in the UFC. And he's never landed more than like 60 significant strikes in a fight. So he doesn't get the volume. He doesn't really have the big show power. He doesn't have the takedown defense. He doesn't have the jiu-jitsu. He's 34. I get he's out of Sanford MMA, but the improvements aren't out of there. So don't cut him, but very limited. Matt Samuelsberger versus Martin Sano. In hindsight, why would you not back up the Brinks truck and go on Samuelsberger? But imagine the prospect of sitting there thinking you had Everything riding on Matthew Selensberg. Your mortgage riding on Matthew Selensberg. Imagine it. You can't do it. You can't do it. It's Matthew Selensberg. But this was such an unbelievably big mismatch, man. Oh, my God. And with Sano, you kind of – if you looked at on, on the results, right, he hadn't fought in three and a half years. The last time he fought was a draw against a low-level guy, Bellator. Prior to that, knocked out by a minute in a minute and a half against a lower to mid-level guy in Bellator. Yeah, yeah, on paper, he's going to get crushed here. And – why 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 is he even in this spot? Well, because Nick Diaz is his buddy. So as a result, just like we saw with Marcus Mariano and Anderson Silva, just like we saw with Chris Avila and Nate Diaz, just because you're the guy's buddy, they bring you in. And in this case, 15 seconds, right? I think Fight Metric right recorded it was three punches, but basically it was two punches. Bang, bang, slap. Sano done. Where does he go from here? Nowhere. Nowhere. He never fights in the UFC again. I imagine people think, oh, you signed a four-fight deal. No, he's this is a one-and-done. He's not coming back to the UFC. At the very uh, he could win two, three fights in the regional and get a contender series fight, maybe. But his UFC days are over. And for Semmelsberger, he did exactly what he had to do. I thought he looked decent against Chaos Williams this last time out. Lost. Volume wasn't quite there. And this fight came in great shape. It was much larger than Sano, despite the fact that Sano had previously fought at middleweight. Semmelsberg is big for the weight class. He's a strong, durable guy. I don't see him a top 15 potential quite yet, but uh, he's going to be an entertaining end. He's going to be one of these guys that we can back in certain spots and be interesting who they give him next because they're not going to give him another layup. Like, that was it. Cool. Here's your money. And uh, next time out, I expect them to give him actually somebody decent. Uh, Nick Maximov versus Cody Brunridge. <clears throat> We're on Nick Maximov. I... I to be honest, earlier in the week, I thought I was maybe going to take a shot on Carl Roberson, depending on what he looks at at the scales, because he doesn't really look good at the scales most of the time. So you had to you had to see him, and obviously he never made it that far. But with Nick Maximov, I never saw no striking out of him. Like on tape, he wasn't really striking all that well. We know that he's a jiu-jitsu guy. We know that he's got grappling. Uh, as far as his wrestling, he wrestled community college, so pretty solid. He's got a wrestling base, right? He knows what a takedown is. And uh, at least on paper, he has like a grind. He's got a chain wrestling style. He's got a heavy pace style, but his cardio didn't look all that good, at least in, you know, uh, an LFA fight that went to the second round. So there was a lot of question marks on him going in against Carl Roberson, who's got big show experience, has fought in the UFC numerous times, has fought guys like Glover Teixeira, almost knocked out Glover Teixeira, struggles with the grappling side of things. But again, I mean, could come out here and pose some serious problems to Nick Maximoff. He ends up getting Cody Brunridge. Maximoff striking. Look very improved. Is he a striker? No. Can he strike for 15 minutes at a time? Most definitely not. But he looked better, you know? He had a head kick in there. He had a right hand in there. He looked a little more fluid. He looked like he was willing to engage and use those hands a little bit to try setting up some takedowns, at least early. Brunridge, first round's close, right? First round's going both ways. Brunridge is landing the leg kicks. Maximov's landing the better head shots. But it's a very close round. Again, could go either way. I would say about... Two-thirds through the round, I would lean Brunridge maybe just on the leg kicks and then the takedown, right? There's a minute and a half left. Maximov scores the takedown, right? That's pretty much the end of the first round. He has about 90 seconds of top control, lands a couple short shots in that exchange. 
that that's a maximum first round as far as I'm concerned. I did check SureDog.com because they used three guys to score, and all three of them gave it to Brunridge. But on on what? Some leg kicks? He kicked his leg a few times. He gave up the takedown. That was the most definitive thing of that first round, so I gave it to Maximum. Second round, okay, so second round, the referee's like, are you ready? Are you ready? Go. And Brunridge basically shoots from his own corner. And Maximoff sees this thing coming from a mile away because it came from a mile away and just easily reverses the position, takes his back, body triangles him up, spends the entire round basically with his back. And the only thing you can take away there for um, for Maximoff maybe is that he was touted as like super high-level jiu-jitsu. Like this guy's jiu-jitsu is on another level. If he takes down Robertson, he's going to submit him like nothing. Like, you know, he's a serious player. He was, gonna, he was getting ready for the ADCC trials. And he spent the better part of four minutes on a man's back and never really came close to getting any type of finishing sequence there, but that's definitely a maximum round. So I, I got him up to nothing. And then the third is, is cardio again, comparatively to what we had seen on tape is cardio actually checked out. I know he got his ass kicked, not his ass kicked. He lost the third round. He lost the third round fairly definitively because he got outstruck soundly, but he never quit dude. He was just driving on takedowns, driving on takedowns, driving on takedowns. He actually finishes the round on top. Loses the round, but at this point, I got it 29 28. That's what they scored it perfect, happy with Maximov, and uh, we move on. So we're three and oh, we got Jalen Turner now. Jalen Turner opened up as a plus 165 underdog as well. The reason why I called um Jonathan Pierce our true underdog was he still did go off as an underdog, whereas Jalen Turner opens up as 165, and then some good money came in. He ended up going off at plus 110, I believe. So still another underdog, he was our second underdog hit. But I mean, not not a whole lot of juice on the bone. Now, the only thing that got me worried, and this is the more you listen to, I'm not saying just listen to me, you got to do your research. But the more research you do, right, sometimes you start second guessing yourself a little bit. And despite all the money from the public was coming on Turner, he moved from plus 165 to plus 110. I was firmly on Turner. Like the last day or two leading up, I got a lot of messages and a lot of people reaching out being like, Euros is going to truck this guy. Euros is going to truck this guy. Watch this. Watch this. Still went with Turner, and yeah, man, it's experience. Again, it comes down to experience. It's not that Euros couldn't develop and be something, but when you fight five or six fights at Alaska FC, right, you get a contender series fight against a low-level guy, Mikey Gomez, right? Get him out of there early. Now you get a low-level fight in UFC, Elon Cruz. You get him out of there early. How do you now take on a guy that's got six fights in the UFC who's fought a guy like Vincente Luque? He's actually on a two-fight winning streak. And by the way, all 12 of his pro wins, all of them inside the distance, 100% inside the distance ratio. He's got experience. He's got a four-and-a-half-inch reach advantage. And you guys aren't fighting at the apex where you might be able to corral him up against the cage. <laughs> you guys are fighting at the T-Mobile. It's a big cage. Like, he's going to utilize it. He's too long. He's too fast. And Jalen Turner, man, he, this was as good as Jalen Turner's ever looked because he mixed it all in, right? The wrestling, I don't know, he caught a kick. That's what ended up getting the fight to the ground. But as far as him being on the ground, just absolutely dominated. Like, using that long man jiu-jitsu, that, 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 that length, that leverage, I thought he looked solid on the ground. Fight gets standing. God damn, he's got some hand speed. Like, he would rip a three-punch combination, end it with a big shot to the body, and that's what started to break him down. As soon as he started working Euros' body, it was like, oh, shit, none of those guys in Alaska FC did that. Oh, shit, that dude on the Contender Series who I just took out early, Elon Cruz who I just took out early, they didn't work my body. So when you've never seen a guy go through that, you don't know how he's going to persevere. And in this case, did it. Once his body got cooked, that was it. Now, a couple of people hit the Jalen Turner submission prop. Props to that. It was like plus 900. Um, 
And it could have very well easily been the TKO. It was about to be a TKO, and then Euros rolled over to get away from the damage and gave up the rear naked choke. And it cashes. So props. If you had Turner inside the distance, great. The main move, and I know my boy Paul Shaughnessy was literally all over this, was that the fight was not going to go the distance. Euros has never fought more than six and a half minutes. Jalen Turner's got a 100% finish ratio. This is a foregone conclusion. This thing was probably not even going to go the uh, over one and a half, let alone the distance. So good times all around. Jalen Turner looks spectacular. And again, where do they both go? Well, uh, Euros is still young enough. And this was a good... Guys need to take a beating like this, right? He's got an undefeated record. He's 7-0. It's ballooned up. You need to take a beating like this so that you can look at yourself in the mirror and be like, am I willing to do the things that are necessary to get better and for this not to happen again? Or was this the hardest you were given? Was this the hardest you want to pursue this? That first loss is really telling for a lot of fighters. Either they're going to come back and make the improvements. And he's at King's MMA. And he's Benil Darius's guy and yada, yada, yada. He could make improvements. He could dedicate himself. He could back and reinvent himself. He's got solid power, but he lacks the rest of it. And his wrestling didn't look no good to me. His uh, submission defense didn't look good. No, no, no. He got choked out because he was already bombed. But his striking didn't look particularly good. He just had power. He was just like a generic basic guy. Whereas Jalen Turner was a dude that came in and took the same ass whooping, same ass whooping Euros just took. He took in his UFC debut against Vincente Luque, right? The difference is that Jalen Turner decided these are the things I got to do to become a better fighter and did them. So solid, solid outing for Jalen Turner. Taylor Sanders versus Roxanne Montefiore. Uh, okay, so the top take. If you guys are following so far on, on Twitter, because we, we're, we're on a roll at this point, we're feeling good about it. It's still on the prelim, so there's a long ways to go. But I would have put, in my mind, the two locks were Valentina Shevchenko and Taylor Santos. But uh, it, th th that would have made the top take at like minus 230. And I would have been the laughing stock of the MMA world if Roxanne somehow pulled that win and ruined a top ticket and crushed everything, I would have been a fucking idiot. So I was like, I can't do that. I got to put out a hedge out option with Volkanovsky so I can reassess where I'm sitting at the end of the night instead of just blowing everything on a, on a Roxanne mon. If she, if she did that and she's cast a big plus blood of plus money tickets in the UFC, I, I would, uh, I'd have to crawl under a rock, right? Imagine that. Couldn't do it. So I'm like, I'm going to drop her down in the second line. But in my heart, I think she's the second most, uh, confident play on this card like Roxanne just doesn't have the athleticism and the strength to take her down and she doesn't have the striking to stand with her so how does she win this fight how people were saying well she's got the jiu-jitsu but you can't use the jiu-jitsu if you can't take your opponent down now mind you Roxy shot a few takedowns she grinded her up against the cage I thought her best moments were with the cage control you know she was actually pretty decently strong in the clinch but she wasn't getting any results out of it. When Taylor Santos wanted to take her down, she would. She would just muscle her down. As far as Roxy on her back, the submission game wasn't advanced enough to just catch somebody like Taylor Santos, who's pretty decent grappler herself, with something off your back. You're just not going to catch them. And then as far as it being standing, she got wobbled multiple times. The happy warrior has got the heart of a warrior, man. That was some Bushido shit. Like, when she would get rocked, she's hurt, and she just never quits on herself. And she came in here, she tied the all-time record for most MMA fights for a female fighter. And it's like, uh, it's, a it's a credit to her. It's a credit to her perseverance, her game, her grind, her will. She is a true samurai. She's a pioneer of the women's MMA, right? Started out in Japan because there was no fighting in the United States. 
but but to fight in the UFC and they're giving you these like top end Brazilian talents, like you fought a girl that was seventeen and one coming in and is now eighteen and one. Is it a half ballooned up record? Sure, but all the same, they're not you're not they're not doing you any favors. You know, should she fight uh, Jessica Panay? Yeah, that that would probably be a lot more right up her alley, right? Let Panay move up to one twenty five, and let them fight at that weight class. Take on a thirty eight year old aged veteran as well, right? But but. They just don't do her any favors. And you know what? She don't want no favors. Why? Because she's a warrior. She's a warrior. She's never turned down a fight in her life. So credit to Roxy, but that one went exactly how we thought. Uh, well, the only thing that almost blew it, because we had good bounces on this card. This wasn't just a walk in the park. We had some good bounces. The good bounces there is that I had Taylor Santos by decision, right? And Roxy got wobbled a few times. So maybe that's why I'm really praising her name right now is that like, a quitter, a quitter would have been like, nah, man, this is the third time I got dropped. I'm done. A bad referee would have been like, I'm just going to mercy kill this thing. But Roxy always fought back. So I'll give her credit, credit there. Chris Dokas versus Shamil Abdurakimov. If you read a lot into narrative, clearly I'm a guy that reads a lot into narrative. The UFC wants Chris Dokas to win this fight. Shamil's 40 years old. He hasn't fought in almost two years. He's coming off a knockout loss. And it looks like Chris Dokas could be potentially a contender. He's still young. In a division that's full of the old dogs, He's young. They're building up him. They're building up Aspinall. They're building up some of these younger heavyweights that are eventually going to take over. Whereas Curtis Blades is the young guy. He doesn't have a fan-friendly style. You know, he's had a couple of entertaining fights. Don't get me wrong. But a lot of it's just, I got to take this guy down and neutralize him because I don't want to stand with him for, for a prolonged period of time. These Dokus guys, these Aspinall guys, yeah, that's what you could market. You could market these guys that are just going to come at you and let your hands go. Now, I did mention on the preview show the one thing that was a tad hesitant about going all the way in on Dokus this week is that he's an excellent hammer, not the greatest nail, at least on the regional scene. His last two losses, they're fights that he starts off well in, and when he starts to face a bit of adversity, he kind of falls apart a little bit. As far as his run in the UFC goes, it's been flawless, but he's been finishing these guys pretty quickly. So if you extend him, is he going to tire? Is he going to slow down? And where is this? This it did answer some questions to me. Dokus looked dialed in the entire time. We knew he was going to be faster than Shamil, but he's also a lot smaller than Shamil. Shamil is a thick brick of a man covered in hair. Like, this is a menacing dude that's very difficult to push back. We knew we'd have the speed advantage, but we knew that this guy would be a heavy hitter. He did hit Dokus a few times. Dokus just rolled with it. He stayed in his face. He put pressure on him. He had an excellent high, tight guard. And heavyweights oftentimes are kind of lazy, you know, like the Junior DeSanto style. Their hands are low and they bounce around. And they throw from the hip a lot of the times, right? Very few guys keep a nice, high, tight guard and can hold it. For the first round, I thought he looked very good. Second round, it's like that's when you see him. Well, actually, he drops Abdurakhimov hard, right? He throws half punches, half punches, half punches, big punch, you know, half punches, half punches, big punch. And so <clears throat> what I like out of Dokus is that it's unusual for a heavyweight is that he moves well. He's very mobile, good footwork. That's unusual for a heavyweight. He's got great output with his punches. <clears throat> and still for a smaller, mo more mobile guy, people said maybe he could make 205. He can still sting with some serious zip. His cardio checked through. The second round, he looked better than he did in the first round. And that second knockdown, the way Abdurakhimov's head snapped and he hit the canvas, Mark Smith, again, worst referee in the game, should have stopped that fight right there. Instead, um, let's see him off. He's getting killed. This is the second time he's been dropped. That was a nasty knockdown. Just stopped the fight. But now he lets him take half a dozen more because why not? So Chris Dokus wins, you know, kind of a shitty stoppage. But this is a huge moment for Dokus. And what's next for him? Sky's the limit for him, dude. Sky's the limit for him. He could be a 
he could be a top 10, top five heavyweight within the next couple of years. He's still young. He's not taking a ton of damage in these fights. And it seems like he's making a lot of improvements. He's also a BJJ black belt, which he hasn't even had to use yet. So guy's probably pretty well-rounded. And if he continues to improve, he's going to be a scary prospect. Shamil's done, right? Shamil's done. Do you bring him back? You could, but what would you be bringing back? He's going to need six months after that. So, so you bring him back as a 41-year-old who's fought once in the last two years. Who's lost his last two fights by knockout? Four four losses in the UFC, all four of them first round knockout. Sorry, this is the second round knockout, but all all, all four of them were by knockout, right? Eh, maybe not. Bellator would probably be interested in this guy and let them have at it, right? Dan Hooker versus Nazrat Hackfrost story all week was basically like, is this fight even going to happen? And both guys are cutting weight and they're trying to get on a plane and they got to come down and they both pretty much faced the same hurdles. Dan Hooker's from New Zealand, which apparently you're not even allowed to leave the house, so. I'm not really sure, but you just knew Dan Hooker's a consummate professional. He was begging on, and not begging, begging is probably a bad word, frothing at the mouth on social media to get a visa. He wanted that so bad. Like you could just tell, I want, he was prepared. He was willing to go. He wasn't looking at him like, oh, I'm half prepared. You know what? Can't get a visa. Might as well just fight on another car two months from now and secure the visa. He was like, let's do this shit right now. He came in, he looked awesome shape as far as the making weight which is a good sign for him, right? Because he's a fairly big enough guy. And he had faced all those hurdles. So when he made weight look good at the scales, it was like, okay, this is a confidence piece. Now, I'm a Nazareth high cross guy. Love me some Nazareth. But I suppose the knock on Nazareth would be, he doesn't throw, they have him as like, he's the fifth most strikes landed, right? In, but he'd fight limited competition where he throws just a ton of volume, ton of volume, ton of volume, racks up stats. But he's another one of these guys I would define as an excellent hammer and not a very good nail. When you back up Nazareth Hackcross and you put pressure on him, he doesn't seem to deal very well with it. And you would see it in pockets in fights, but he'd still win the fight. But they were against bad guys. The one time he steps up is Drew Dober and he gets knocked out in a minute. So Dan Hooker's coming off fights with Michael Chandler, title challenger, former Bellator champion. He's coming off fights with Dan, uh, Dustin Poirier, future title challenger. Uh, just all around one of the best lightweights you've ever seen in your life. Paul Felder, you know, a legend of the game. Guys like Edson Barbosa. The level of guys that he had fought was in no way, shape, or form comparable to the guys that Hackrons fought. Different leagues. And Hooker usually loses in like the fourth or fifth. He just takes too much damage, right? So in a three-round fight, beating him? Ooh, good luck with that. So you like Hooker. You like Hooker a lot. But again, then the... then. Nah, is was it a bad wake up? Was he on a plane? Can he train in New Zealand? That's what causes you to not go Hooker higher up than he was. And you respect Nazareth. But Hooker had the goods to deliver, and that is exactly what he did. And he just overwhelmed him the entire fight. I mean, he got in his face. He just outlanded him three to one. Nazareth looked super uncomfortable off his back foot. He would back up. He landed a couple decent shots, don't get me wrong. But Hooker's been a guy that outside of a Michael Chandler left-hand bomb... Has <laughs> a cast iron chin. So he would take it and just walk right through and just put volume. The knees up the middle, there as always. Mixed in his wrestling, actually pretty decent as well. And just always had Nazareth second guessing himself. Nazareth didn't look himself, but also Hooker looked exceptionally well. And what that is, is Nazareth is a top 15 fringe guy, right? And Dan Hooker is a top five talent, a top 10 talent, a top eight talent at the very worst, right? This guy's got the goods and he uh, he, he showed up and he showed out. Marab Devashvili versus Marlon Marais. So at this point, 
let's just calculate this bitch back, right? So we got Jonathan Pierce, one, Simmelsberger, two, Maximoff, three, Turner, four, Santos, five, uh, Dokus, six, Hooker, seven. We got seven straight. It's the last prelim fight. We got Marab Dabashvili taking on Marlon Marais. We end up going with Dabashvili. How could you not respect what Marlon brings? But it seems like Mar- what Marlon brings, he only really brings it for like three minutes. Now, can he knock you out within that three minutes? Yeah, ask Al Jermaine Sterling, which I'm sure Marab Dabashvili did. Uh, you know, ask ask uh, Jimmy Rivera, who's cast iron, durable, right? Like, yeah, Marlon hits you. He's going to do a tremendous amount of damage. But, man, the Henry Cejudo fight, Marlon starts off awesome. And then when he doesn't finish him, he completely falls apart. Jeez. The Sandhagen fight, no, I guess the Sandhagen fight doesn't really matter. But the Rob Font fight, jeez, he started off really good, I thought. Really good. You know, two takedowns, pretty much dominating Rob Font. And then he gasses out. So this fight, that was the same thing. We knew there was a good possibility that Marlon could put it on early. But if this thing got out of the first round, it was going to be all Marab. But MMA gambling, gambling in general. Sports gambling, especially, it's it, 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 it. You need the bounces. You need the what if moments, right? And in this case, yeah, it could have very well been a first round knockout. Marlon Marais. He drops. He hurts him. He's stung, and he's swarming him. And if Mark Smith, the referee, probably stops it. I know Mark earlier. It's like he stopped the fight too late. But the thing is, he's such a shitty referee. He stops good fights too early and bad fights too late. He's just a shitty referee, plain and simple, right? In this spot, it's like a bad referee stomps in this fight. Marab is hurt. He's standing. He's wobbled. And there's a couple. Marlon just wings these things. He thinks he's got him so dead to rights. He wings them. And they miss by two inches. And Marab's head standing here. Here's what I didn't understand. So we know Marab, right? He shoots 100 takedowns a fight. Normally gets 13 or 14 of them. But for the first three minutes of the fight, he wasn't trying to wrestle. He was trying to wing bombs at him. That's why Marlon caught him. He thought a shit game plan for the first three minutes and got caught. Now he's dead to rights on his feet, wobble, probably doesn't know where he is. His head's sitting on the line. He's still not wrestling. Marlon wings a couple, misses, and it's like he regains his focus. He digs an underhook, and he presses him up against the cage. And there's like he just sits there against the cage for like 30 to 45 seconds, and all of a sudden Marlon's like, oh, I blew my load. And Marab's like, oh. It's UFC 266. I'm at the T-Mobile Arena in Las Vegas. It's September the 25th. And just goes into fucking Terminator mode. And uh, dude, for a guy that was this close to getting stomped, he arguably wins the round back. Oh my God. Once he got on top, it was just like, you know, I don't know, man. I don't know what it was. Georgian power, something kicked into this guy and he just put a beating on Marlon Marias, and I, I, I couldn't even tell you how to score that round. I really could not tell you. Second round, though, it's, our, it, it's all Devosh, really. He's broken this man. Marlon's a first-round fighter, and now this is a second round. He's taken all your best shots, and he's regained focus, and he is in extremely good shape. His cardio was top-notch. This is a beating of epic proportion. Rob Devosh really hadn't scored a TKO victory. He hadn't scored a finish victory inside of the UFC. You know, he's more known as a decision guy. He's going to grind you. And he's taken on worse guys than Marlon Marais. And again, still just grinded them to a decision. But this was like, once he broke this man's will and Marlon got tired, whoa, he swarmed him. So I feel extremely bad for two people. Marlon Marais and the next motherfucker that's got to sign the bout contract to fight this guy. (laughs) Why would you want to fight Marab Dabajvili? Oh, my. God. Anyways, uh, moving on to the main card. And so it's time for everybody's favorite DraftKings read. 
Week three of football is in the books, and now it's time to review the tape and get ready for week four with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. To kick off another action-packed week, DraftKings is giving new customers $150 instantly when they bet $1 on any football game. Listen up because you do not want to miss this. Head to the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and place a bet $1 on any game this week and receive $150 free bets instantly. If Sportsbook is not available in your state, DraftKings still has huge cash prizes up for grabs all season long with their daily fantasy contests. DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code DOP to receive $150 in free bets when you place $1 on any football game. That's promo code DOP this week at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 years or older, New Jersey, Indiana, Pennsylvania only, new customers only, minimum $5 deposit, and a $1 rager required. One per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or Indiana 1-800-9-WITH-IT. All right, we're kicking off the main card. We got Jessica Andrade versus Cynthia Calvillo. Uh, like, we're riding high off, of, off the prelims here, right? We've got eight straight on the prelims. Things are looking good. Just to recap to this point, Pierce is on our bottom ticket. He's on the PRP ticket. He came through for us, right? Turner and Maximoff, they're on the sixth ticket at the bottom. They both came through too, which means the next 10 guys ahead of them are all supposed to be my more confident plays. Uh, Hooker just put on a fucking hell of performance, but he's going to need Robbie Lawler to do something miraculous. Curtis Blades is still to come. Rod Vlashvili just pulled victory from the jaws of defeat. Total dope shit, but that's good. Chris Doukas is on that third ticket. He needs himself some Jessica Andrade. So we're starting off the main card. It's a big one for us. We need this to keep the momentum rolling, and she's one of these more confident plays. Now, I suppose, again, when you're always thinking, why didn't I go heavier? You always think that the next morning, right? Ah, oh, I knew that person was going to win. Why didn't I do bigger? You can't think of it like that. you got to be happy with what you get and just move on. It was a good read. Be happy you were on the right side of it. Be happy in the confidence that you knew. Okay, you know, we were right about that one, but is what it is. Why didn't I go bigger on her? I thought Cynthia Cavillo might come out and try to wrestle here. And with Andrade, it's a tale of not two fighters, but when she's highly motivated, good luck. She's in shape. She's a bulldog. She comes at you. Very few girls in the division can strike with her. Very few girls in the division can grapple with her. And she's got 15-minute cardio. She's like female John Lineker. And she just fights a very, very, very tough, difficult pressure-style game plan. How do you deal with it? Um, And when she's not super motivated, like, I I don't know. Sometimes in spots she gets hit a little bit. She just marches forward. She doesn't throw as many shots. Anyways, this is a a picture-perfect performance for Andrade. She just crushed her pillar to post. She backed her up. Yeah, maybe she got hit a few times. But it was all putting pressure on. You're going to get a few hit a few times when you just close the pocket and stay in their face and fight them that close. And yeah, so she, she got hit a few times. But every time she would get hit, she would return fire with two bigger punches. And it broke Cynthia. Now, I did have the Jessica. I took a shot at the Jessica Andrade. Um, I want to fight goes the distance in the Jessica Andrade by decision, thinking Cynthia Cavillo's never been finished. In fact, she's never really been hurt. But this fight, she was hurt right from the onslaught. She got beat, again, it was pillar to post beating. One round finished, TKO win, or yeah, TKO win for Jessica Andrade. And yeah, again, very, very impressed with what you see out of her. She's going to be in that slot where she's the number three girl in the world. She's always going to be the title challenger. I don't know that we see her winning again. She's been a world champion. I mean, she defeated Rose. 
and they can still put her in another fight with Rose, and they can still put her in a fight, another fight with Wiley. And uh, to be honest with you, her and Joanny and Jacek, I know the first fight wasn't exactly the most exciting, but run that thing back. If she shows up motivated and in good shape, she is an absolute problem. And she always, she's always going to factor in that top five. With Cynthia Cavill, meanwhile, she's another one of these fighters that's low-key 34 years old, not on a good run right now, lost back-to-back fights. Hard to falter for losing this one, right? And the other one's to Caitlin Chikagian. So world-class competition, but very difficult to build your way back up into these more meaningful fights at this stage in your career. So she's going to have to do a lot of... Uh, Probably just, you know, reassess things anyways. Curtis Blades versus Yarazino Rosenstruck. So I'm, I'm shitting my pants at this point. I'm shitting my pants because fully out, I spoke to Paul earlier on Bookie Beat. Or, why do I always do that? Dogger Pass podcast, right? Uh, we talked about it on the Wednesday show, the preview show, that Curtis Blades smelled like apple pie shit because he's got all the skills in the world to win this fight. He should win this fight. He's going to come over as a three-to-one favorite. And yet he's he's one of these guys that could easily get caught. And taking on Yarazino Rosenstruck, he's one of those guys that really doesn't do a whole lot, but could catch you. So on paper, it's going to be blades all day. But then when the cage door closes and shit gets hectic, like you just got a bad gut feeling that one punch from one of these big guys is going to land. And it might be Yarazino landing on blades and putting them down. So I was actually really nervous about this fight. But whatever, what are you going to do? You got to do what you got to do. So the first round, Blades is not rushing the takedown. I want to see him get the takedown kind of right away. But in the Derek Lewis fight, he shot kind of a naked takedown without setting things up, was desperate to get to the ground, ate the uppercut. So this time he was trying to gauge the distance. He was moving well. He was staying on the outside. And he's got such a massive reach on him. He was just doing a good job of popping out the jab and trying to keep Yarazino at bay. Yarazino, as he always does, doesn't really throw a whole lot of offense. And then Blades eventually takes him down. So this is a good round for Curtis Blades. Wins the first. We're good here. Blades has fought five rounds at a high pace. He's got excellent cardio. He trains in Colorado at altitude. Cardio is not going to be a problem for him. But in the second round, it does look like he's starting to slow down. Like, I don't know. He just kind of looked half unsure of himself. But Yarazino's just not doing enough. Then about late in the round, he lands a couple decent shots. I'd still favor it for Curtis Blades. And then Blades walks into this knee. Boom. Right in the face. A lesser man goes down. A lesser heavyweight goes down. In fact, Curtis Blades, some people call Chinny, could have easily gone down. But instead of hitting him in the chin, smacks him right in the eye. His eye basically swells up shut almost right away. He does end up getting a tank down moments later, spends the rest of the round on top but doesn't do anything on top with the takedown. So honestly, I swore that round for Yarazino Rosenstra. Probably because I'm drinking, probably because I'm excited, probably because I'm thinking what's my worst case scenario. But I, but I went with damage. Nothing had really happened in the second round for my liking. Yarazino, to me, landed the better shots. Curtis looked uncertain of himself standing, and he just bombed him with the knee that caused the most damage. There was a takedown, but with zero ground and pound out of the takedown, just holding position, the fans are even booing. You know, this is a heavyweight fight, and I know that they've watched some kick-ass fights at that point, so they were probably chomping at the bit, and Robin Diaz is about to come out. It's like, fuck these guys, get them out of here, right? But, like, they weren't overly excited. Like, Blaze wasn't doing anything. So my worst case is that this thing's a 1-1. And then in the third round... Blades shows that he's a contender, right? Because you've got to make adjustments. you got to persevere. His eyes closed, and this could be a 1-1, so he goes out and gets the fight to the ground and has a solid round. Leaves no doubt about it. Yarazino, he's just not good. He could land on you. Sure, he could land. He's like a Chaos Williams, you know? He could land. Abdul Razak Al-Hassan, again, shit, he could land. He's got a tremendous amount of power. Well, Abdul might be coming back, dude. That guy looks scary good as last time. 
they got a lot of power, right? So they can get away with a lot of flaws. His flaws is that his takedown defense is not very good. His ground game is not very good. His punch output's not very good. He just kind of sits there and waits and hopes to land that one big shot. And in any fight, it could land, especially at heavyweight. But if it doesn't land, he stinks the joint out. Like, he's not exactly the most entertaining guy. And against these elite-level heavyweights, he's just not coming up on the winning end of things. So you're not going to cut him, right? You're going to give him some more guys that are literally just going to stand in front of him. But even if you gave him a guy that was literally just going to stand in front of him, no guarantees he's going to do shit, you know? So frustrating. I don't know how much money they're paying him, but he's the type of guy that you could, in theory, let go to Bellator. Like, you could. And Curtis Blades, yeah, he moves on. He moves on, but this was not a great performance from him. He's going to go out, to go back to the drawing board and make some improvements. He seems he knows he's been knocked out, so he's tentative to fully commit to his strikes. And now he's relying strictly on his wrestling. And you're not going to be able to get away with that forever. And it's catching up to him ever so slightly. Yeah, yeah, Arzino, sure you could take him down, but these other guys, when it doesn't materialize, that's when he's going to be in a bad bad spot. But I still got faith in Curtis Blades. I'll probably bet him in the future because I just love that wrestling uh, advantage he has. Robbie Lawler versus Nick Diaz. We've come this far in the night, and this is the million-dollar question fight, right? People have been going back and forth all week. It opens. It opens. Paul actually got in on the soft opener, but it was a uh, minus 105, right? So Robbie Lawler, this is a pick and fight. Nobody has a clue how this thing's going to go. It's not until fight week that people start to catch on. Something might be up. Nick Diaz, at first, it's like, uh, let's do this thing on 185, not 170. That's kind of your first red flag. It's like, but nobody really thinks about it at the time. They're just like, oh, okay, well, you know, he hasn't fought in a while. And, you know, well, okay, they're just they're going to do it at 185. Who cares? It's a, it's just a fun super fight anyways. Like, the weight class really doesn't matter. This, this, this has no bearing on the ranking. So why, why not do it at 185? And then you get your second red flag where it's like he does that interview. It's just like, oh, okay, so it seems like his head's not in the right space. It seems like he's looking for a paycheck and he's come on some tough times. His Instagram over the last five years has been nothing but him partying and He's been hard on his own body and probably blew through a lot of his savings. But, hey, I see my brother fighting and making million-dollar paydays, and I was always a superior fighter to him. I want a big fight. You know, they're going to pay me. He made no less than a half million dollars for this fight because that's what he got paid his last fight five years ago. And the market for a Nick Diaz fight is probably even better now than it was back five years ago. So, so he got paid handsomely here, but it seemed like that was his motivation. It wasn't, I want to prove to the world I'm still a top-notch martial artist. It was like, you know, oh, well, my sponsor wants me to do this, and my, my friends and family want me to do this. And it's like, I don't know. It just seems sad. He's 38 years old, hasn't fought in a while. So that's your second red flag, right? They moved up a weight class. He's given a very terrible interview here that's just kind of depressing all around. The clip of him shadow boxing comes out. And Diaz fans, God bless them. I'm a Diaz fan myself. Nick Diaz is one of my favorite fighters. But, but so is Robbie Law. That was my dilemma here. God bless them. They're right, dude. He, when people say, man, he sounds punchy, he's, he's always sounded punchy. And when they say, well, the clip of him shadow boxing, he looked really stiff and rigid. Like him shadow boxing always kind of looks wonky and awkward. Like he's got an awkward style to him. But the guy's a fighter and 100%, whether he's in shape or he's not in shape, he will show up to fight, but there was too many red flags. Then they got on the scale, and I saw him flex up on the scale, and it's like, you know, I've watched basically all of Nick Diaz's fights and, like, his body composition. It, I, sure, he's at 185 pounds, Cody. Obviously, he's not going to be as shredded as he was as a welterweight, and, like, his, his physical body composition isn't the same, right? I would reckon that was probably drink, drinking, right? He's put on some weight. He's partied. He's not – doesn't – he's still an athlete, still an athletic guy he still runs these triathlons you see pictures of him on instagram and he looks all shredded up but he, he's not he's not the same nick diaz anymore 
anyways, it all it all just leads to a Robbie Lawler bet, and that's what we end up going with. And in the first round, uh, Robbie just comes right at him and starts bombing. I this fight almost ended. It looked like in like the first seven seconds, Robbie comes at him, lands two shots, and Diaz like half curls over. It's like what the hell is going on here? And then Diaz wakes up because he got punched in the head. And it's like oh, go time, baby. And uh, he absorbs. I, Robbie's pretty much beating him up pretty good the first minute, and then Diaz storms right back. And it's his classic Diaz. He's not ripping the body as much as he used to. And Robbie, Robbie never let this guy move forward. One thing you'll notice about Nick Diaz, all of his highlights, is he's always moving forward because he's putting so much volume and damage on you. These guys tend to backwards. So when you watch like the BJ Penn fight, or you watch the Frank Shamrock fight, Elite XC, or you fight any of these good striking performances where he's just lacing these guys, is they're like curled up up against the cage, he's putting the pressure on. Robbie, no matter what, stuck in his face for the entirety of the fight. Pressure, 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 stayed on him. <clears throat> it was beautiful work, man. But he's taking a lot of fucking shots as a result. In my opinion, Robbie landed the better shots in the round, but Diaz landed a whole bunch more of them. So it's difficult to tell, right? If you look at fight metric, which fight metric is kind of a joke, by the way. I don't, I, I don't mean that disrespectfully, because I, I use them all the time. They're a great research tool. I really appreciate that someone's keeping all these numbers. But when you look at this fight, right, they're going to tell you that Robbie Lawler or that Nick Diaz landed seventy-one significant strikes in the first round to Robbie Lawler's fifty-seven. So he landed the volume. He landed the output. And in the second round, he lands the seventy-three. So they're saying, fight metric saying that he threw. 150 total strikes and 150 of them were significant strikes saying he landed 150 significant strikes but when you see those they're not significant a lot of them are glancing robbie blocked a shit ton of punches right they're glancing shots now i say well this is the comparison i want to make marab devajvili meanwhile he only landed 69 significant strikes against marlon marais well how is that possible I saw him dribble Marlon's head off the canvas like a basketball. How is this? Uh, how's it? Well, he actually landed 246 total strikes, but some nerd only justified that 69 of the 249 or 246 were significant. 69. Yet Nick Diaz throws 150, and all 150 are significant. You're kidding me. And so that's why it's hard. It's a hard round to score, right? Because Robbie got outstruck in the numbers, but he was landing good volume. So he's landing solid shots, good volume of his own. He's just getting outlanded. And solid strikes landed, and he had the pressure. So I don't know. It was a close round, very close round. And the pessimist in me says, well, I think Nick Diaz won that round. So Robbie's got a little making up to do, but it's a five-rounder. Second round, it's much of the same. Like, Robbie's backing him up. Robbie's pressuring all day. But holy shit, Nick Diaz. Like, my God, this guy's got pace for days. Apparently, it doesn't matter that he just rolled off the couch after a five-year-long five bender. This dude is in incredible shape and just brings the heat. But Robbie's a junkyard dog. And that and that's the difference. One guy for the last five years has been doing nothing but training this one specific sport. He trains he, every day. His entire lifestyle, eat the proper things, meet training camp. He's one of the he's one of the old warriors in the room. People go to for advice at Sanford MMA, where he's just got all the best guys in the world. Meanwhile, Nick Diaz is training with Sano, who got punched out in 15 seconds. Maximum actually impressed like impressed me considering it was his debut and short notice matchup and all this and that. So no, no takeaway there, but but it's like he's not ready. Come on, you're not in the same room. So uh, it had to be Robbie, right? But God. 
damn, Nick is giving a great account of himself, and it's a hard round to score. I, I would want to say that Robbie won the second round as well. He landed the better shots, and I, it was a closer round to me than the first. And even though he got outstruck by the numbers again, I gave the second round to Robbie Long. And then third round, man, Robbie's breaking him. Like, I don't know what switched off for Diaz. He Either he gassed himself out in the first two rounds throwing that many punches, but a prime Nick Diaz, Nick Diaz as you remember him, as you want to remember him, he would have done that for five rounds. Only this time around in the third round, he's hurt. And Robbie spent a lot of time headhunting. It was actually frustrating. He'd back Diaz into the corner, right? And then he would just throw wild hooks up top. It's like, dude, his body's right on display. He's a lanky fighter. He, you work him to the body, and it'll slow him down. Robbie wasn't going to the body right away. Eventually, he started to dig to the body. He landed a good body kick, and he landed a knee up the middle of the body. And that's what started to zap Diaz. Now Diaz started to drop his hands. Then Robbie landed a couple nice uppercuts, a couple big hooks. He's got Diaz all types of rocked. And then Diaz hurts his leg. It's unfortunate. Um, it's an anticlimactic ending to an otherwise tremendous fight. This is one of the best fights I've ever seen. Like It was back and forth. They were fighting in a phone booth. They were literally both, they're sitting up against the cage, head to head, just exchanging hooks. It was a crazy fight. So it was a kind of a shitty ending to a crazy fight, but you can't take anything away from it. Both these guys are absolute warriors. Lawler took everything that Diaz gave and uh, rolled with it. And that was obviously part of the game plan. And for Diaz, meanwhile, holy shit, man, he still got it. It's just he doesn't got it at an elite level. And I think that's something that you can't fault him for. And very entertaining. The UFC could bring him back, but if they respect him, they'll release him from his contract. I say that in the most positive way possible. I say that because he just got paid half million dollars, let's say, to fight Robbie Lawler. And that's a tough fucking fight, my friend. That's a very tough fight. And he took some damage in that fight. And he hurt his leg, apparently. It's a very tough spot for him, right? If they give him another fight for half a million dollars, it's almost certainly going to have to be against another top guy. Like, he's talking about fighting Carl Uzman. Like, he's talking about fighting the best guy. They're going to give him a George Masvidal. And I'm telling you, George Masvidal would inflict a lot of damage to Nick Diaz. If they somehow booked him in a Colby Covington fight, Colby Covington would inflict a lot of damage on Nick Diaz. Not to mention, those guys are welterweights. Did you see him on the scales? There's no way that man makes 170 pounds anymore. He's a middleweight now. So what middleweight would he fight? He's getting a fucking thrash by these guys. So there's no fight the UFC could offer him that for a half million dollars, that's going to be really worth as well. If you release him from his contract now, people are going to laugh. People are going to hate this. Release him from his contract now. He still, even with this loss, he still gets a Jake Paul fight all day long. And it would pay him at least $3 million. Tyron Willie just made two and he's a fucking bum. Nick Diaz has got twice the name. Twice the reputation, five times the excitement level. He'd get paid, a, no doubt, a base minimum of $3 million. How many fights would he have to take in the UFC at half a million, right? He'd be dead. He'd be dead. He'd be in a wheelchair, right? Uh, with dementia. I don't even want to see him in that state. Let him go. Let him go from his contract and let him get paid on some uh, exhibition boxing match, like some life-changing money, so that he can just go back to being Nate Diaz. He deserves it, dude. He deserves it. So... It was a tough go, man. It was a tough go. Uh, but it was a good go because we had Robbie Lawler, and that's the unfortunate part about the sport. You can love a guy. You can respect a guy. In your heart of hearts, you could like to see him win, but you can also bet against him, right? just can't happen tonight. It didn't. So Valentina Shevchenko versus Lauren Murphy. Valentina is the greatest of all time. We know that. 125, she's the GOAT, undeniable. At 135, she'd be the second greatest of all time behind uh, Amanda Nunez. You know? And I thought she won that second Amanda Nunez fight and won the third round of the first meeting. 
there's only a three rounder. So she's as good as it gets. I'd actually, the only fight I can conceivably see for her is to fight Amanda Nunes in a super fight. She doesn't need to move up to 135, but that's just the only thing that makes sense from a interesting standpoint. Lauren Murphy is the number eighth ranked contender in my opinion, but because Valentina's blown out all the other ones, she's just that girl that was in that spot. We really like the over two and a half because even though Lauren Murphy is going to get finished in this fight, she's going to fight for two and a half rounds, baby. And she got us those two and a half rounds, makes it to the fourth, but eventually does succumb to the champion who's just too fucking good. So I won't waste your time there because you know how great uh, anybody can spot greatness. And you watch this girl, it's just there's such a talent discrepancy, man. It's unbelievable. Alexander Volkanovsky versus Brian Ortega. So it's a 13-fight UFC card. Uh, normally, we're trying to hit 12-fight PRPs, but we've luckily stayed intact through 12 fights. We've got one more to go, and that one fight happens to be on the top ticket because we set up the hedge-out opportunity. So in this case, you would stand to cash seven tickets. You're going to cash a minus-150 ticket with a Volkanovsky win, a plus-147, a plus-432, an 878, a plus 2579, a plus 9695, and a plus 2200, 429. So, so if Volkanovsky wins, you're hitting seven tickets, five, six of which are at plus money. <laughs> crush, crush, crush. Now, I don't love posting my own personal tickets to Twitter because I don't like to gloat, right? I'm not one of these, oh, you won $20 tonight? Look what I win. So I'm not ever one that's going to rub it in your face. I always leave it up to the individual. If you're looking at your night and you think, I'm about to win $100 if I let this ride, or I can hedge out, do what you want, but probably let that fucking thing ride, right? If you're looking at a 10K plus night, if you're looking at a 20K plus night, and I've, I've spoken to some of you guys, I'm sure you're watching the recap right now, take the fucking hedge out. Because yeah, we like Volkanovski. Sure, we like all the intervals, but free money. Free money. The benefit here, though, is low-key. Nobody ever likes my prop tweet. I don't know. I'm not a prop guy. People like me for my parlays. They don't give a fuck about that. But Sammonsberger Sano, I took the over one and a half. That's probably the only thing I would fault myself in this entire car. It's like, fuck, that was stupid. What was I thinking? But the turner Medich fight doesn't go the distance. That was an obvious one. So we're, we're one and one there. But uh, because of the minus 180, we're still out on money. Santos Monteferi fight goes the distance. It's minus 240K. That evens us up. Santos by decision. We're in the green. Uh, Blades versus Rosen over one and a half. We're fucking up in the green again. Blades by decision plus 200. Fucking rolling. Andrade by decision. No mas. So that drops us. We're still good. Lawler by TKO plus 210. Anyways, I, I did the math last night. Something like five units. Shevchenko Murphy over two and a half uh, minus 120. And Volkanovsky by decision plus 130. So it was like a six unit, five or six unit hit right there on the props. So the, the props did really good. The parlays are looking like they're doing really good. It's just a good night all around. But I want the PRP. This is why we do it. We don't do it for 11 out of 12 nights. We don't do it for 12 out of 13 nights. I tell these people, I'm going to fucking get all the fights right on this card. Every week I tell people this, right? Because in my heart of hearts, I know we're going to fucking get it. I know it. I've done it before. So far this year, we've actually hit a PFL PRP and a Bellator PRP. Uh, but the PFL was a 10 fighter and the Bellator was a 9. So... You know, it's not a UFC PRP. It's not a 12 fighter. It's not, it's not, it's not the good shit, right? It's not the good stuff. That's what we were going for here. So yeah, the, the fact that we need a Volkanovsky to pull it off, it, 
I, I says, let's go for it. And yeah, he just fought an excellent game plan, man. I, I'm not even talking about his performance right now. I'm talking about my own. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, Volkanovski did everything that he, he needed to do. The first round, he puts pressure on him. Brian Ortega, we knew that he made striking improvements. He showed it in the Frankie fight. He showed it off in the Max fight, even though he took a beating. But he definitely showed off that last fight with Korean Zombie. So at distance, and he fights like a longer guy, he was going to have an advantage from the outside, at least early. And I thought he did some good work, man. He busted up Volkanovski, cut under the eye, has a solid enough first round. But Volkanovski is just one of these guys that refuses to go away. Refuses to go away. And again, another thing that Paul and I had discussed previously on the preview show is you're looking at guys that have greatness, right? You don't bet against greatness. You know, Khabib's got greatness to him. You don't go against that. <clears throat> I bet Dominic Reyes over John Jones. What the fuck is I thinking, right? Even though he could have won that fight. Doesn't matter. You don't go against the greatness. Not until they show you that, oh, they, they, they're done. Volkanovski has just been the near-perfect fighter. He's overcome adversity. He's got a cast-iron chin. He's taken an excellent shot. But Chad Mendez, you know, overcomes that. Max Holloway fight, down two rounds, overcomes that. Tons of output. Ton, just everything, right? The desire to win, the striking, the wrestling, the submission defense, everything checks out for this guy. So it's a tough first round, but you know he's just he's not going to go away. In the second round, he he breaks Brian Ortega. From that point on, it's all Alexander Volkanovsky. He wins the second. I think he's up two rounds. We're going into the third. He's beating on Brian Ortega pretty good. This is going to be a walk in the park. You're you're almost counting up the money. But MMA is a sport where you need bounces, okay? Sometimes you get the bad. God damn it, Tony Gravely. One second left, man. Fuck. Sometimes you get the good bounces, right? This is what I would consider to be a good bounce, right? Because he gets snared up. He's slipped. And Brian Ortega ends up in a topside guillotine. It's his favorite move. It's his favorite position. <clears throat> he chokes out nine out of ten times. And if Mark Smith was the referee, he would have stopped the fight. He would have either claimed that Volkanovski tapped because he's a shit ref and he did it the other day on Contender Series, or Volkanovski's tapping with his feet, fighting for dear life. And Mark would have probably interpreted that as tapping with your feet. But a regular referee sees it for what it is. And as this man is fighting for his life, he was busting his ass. And call it Ortega might be tired. Call it Ortega might be hurt. Call it Ortega might be taking an Alexander Volkanovsky. And the greatness is starting to seep out. But, like, he gets out of this guillotine choke, man. Unbelievable. As soon as he got out, this immediate feeling of relief just falls over me. Like, and he's in a triangle choke. No, it's Brian Ortega's second favorite position. You know why they call him T-City? Triangle City. He has one of the best triangles in the game. But Alexander Volkanovsky is the real deal, man. Fights out of the triangle, beats the shit out of him. Fourth round, he ends up in a Nars choke, fights out of it, beats the shit out of him. They almost stopped this fight. They could have. I had a Volkanovski by decision ticket, so I was hoping they wouldn't. And Ortega showed off his heart, man. And that's one thing you can't take away from some fighters. Sometimes they take a beating, you know, but they got heart. And th these guys display absolute heart. And that's exactly what he did. You know, him, Roxanne Modafferi, there's a couple of them. Like, you can hit them, you can hurt them, you can wobble them. They come back from it, right? They they make the Marab Devashvili, same thing. Those are the type of fighters that you would like to bet. When you're betting the next time around, you bet Marab Devashvili, you're going to tell yourself, you know what? It's going to take a lot to finish this guy. And he's going to go balls to the walls 100% the entire time with an advanced skill set. I'd like to bet on. 
When you bet Alexander Volkanovsky, same thing, right? He's going to go balls to the walls with an advanced skill set. He's cast iron. He's got he's got heart for days. You bet him. Roxanne doesn't have that skill set, but she does have that heart. And in this case, I would say Brian Ortega doesn't seem like he's at an elite level. He, well, he is. No, no, no. He's at an elite level. But but do you classify elite as a top five guy, right? Is elite a top 10 guy, right? All I'm saying is Brian Ortega is a top five guy. Yeah, he's top five guy all day long. But, you know, the beating he took against Max Holloway, who really is top notch, the beating he took against um, Volkanovski here, who really is top notch. And if they, for whatever reason, uh, they wouldn't, they wouldn't. But if they were to whatever reason book uh, Jose Aldo versus Brian in a three round fight, Jose Aldo fucking works his ass. So there's some tough fights for him in the division, right? There's even some fights. Well, actually, Jose Aldo's down at 35 now. It doesn't really have to worry about it. But there's fun fights for Brian either way. It's just you don't want to be taking too much damage like that. He's pulled out of a couple fights, setting injuries. His head, I don't think his head's fully in it all the time. Like, he'll get into some trouble outside of the cage, and he'll give some shitty interviews, and then you won't really see him for a while. And then he shows up, and he shows out. He's giving, he's giving his best. He puts on an entertaining fight for the crowd. But he's taking a tremendous amount of damage in these fights, you got to admit. And with Alexander Volkanovsky, he's the greatest featherweight champion in UFC history. He surpasses Jose Aldo. I don't know if you consider Conor McGregor the best, but it's Alexander Volkanovsky. And um, I was watching with some friends last night, and one of them was like, uh, this is Conor McGregor's weight class, right? And I was like, oh, my God, could you imagine if Conor fought Volkanovsky? Like, even even that Conor, even, like, the Conor. You better hope you sleep in with that first punch, because if you don't, oh, my God. Volkanovski's a serious problem, dude. He's quickly putting his face on Mount Rushmore of MMA fighters if he keeps doing this kind of stuff. And, yeah, who do you give him next? Well, I think Max looked awesome, so a trilogy match there is always warranted, because even though you're up 2 nothing on him, just the way the fights went down, and, and people appreciate high-level martial arts and entertaining fights, and I think that's going to be exactly what it is. And Outside of that, new contenders always do emerge, so no shortness of cool stuff to do for Alexander Volkanovsky. And for Brian Ortega, all the respect in the world, my friend. But, uh, you know, you fought your heart out. It's just you got outlined 214 to 88. Like, you weren't um, – it wasn't like I wasn't the better man. It was like I wasn't the better machine because, like, this guy was a straight-up cyborg, the T T-800 sent back from the future to save John Connors. Like, holy fuck, this guy was on another level. Great stuff. So that's about it. Thanks for joining. If you're one of those people that diehards and follows me all the way to the end, yeah, I'm glad I could pull through for us. If you're one of these people that just watches through the analysis and enjoys the entertainment side of things as well, hope you enjoyed the fights. Hope you enjoyed the recap as well. And uh, again, man, the support's always been tremendous. So I've had such great feedback in the last like week or two since launching this uh, fractional horse racing ownership. And just honestly, the shows in general, you have a bad night. People are always like, don't worry about it. We'll get it back next time. Uh, you guys motivate me to go out there and crush one. And so this shit is not going to happen all the time. So we're going to enjoy it when it does. And it did. So till the next time, my friends, we'll see you guys for Tuesday contender series. And then, uh, no rest for the wicked. We'll be back next weekend for the UFC. Easy. Oh, oh, oh.